Hey friend, it's David Nabinsky here in Brooklyn. So excited for this podcast episode with Michelle Wooker. Special thanks to prior podcast guest April Rennie for connecting Michelle and I. Uh, in this episode, you will learn about risk. Michelle recently wrote the book, You Are What You Risk, and we dive deep into all things risk and how to think about risk for your career, how to think about risk in the context of a portfolio, a risk fingerprint that you have. And Michelle also wrote a very popular book called The Gray Rhino. And this book is a complimentary book to that, to those ideas. As always, this episode with timestamp notes is available on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There, you can subscribe to my newsletter called One Email Away, which has the best insights from the podcast and friend-sourced job opportunities. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Here we go with Michelle. Um, so my mom is coming into New York City this weekend, and so I'm celebrating that. And I was curious to learn a little bit about what you learned from your grandmother. Oh, my grandmother. Wow. Well, first of all, um, my, my grandmother was a, was a war bride in, in Belgium. And she used to ride her bicycle carrying messages for the for the resistance. And uh, her father had carrier pigeons also, you know, carrying messages. And and she took these amazing risks, uh, you know, during the Second World War with, uh, you know, with her messages. And of course, she met a handsome young GI who might became my grandfather. Um, and so it was, she was really brave of her. And then, of course, she came to the United States with her uh, with her young husband. And she was an amazing person. But she was stubbornness all get out. At least I come by my stubbornness, honestly. And she, uh, she had an abdominal aneurysm that they kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And once it gets to five centimeters, the doctors are like, you need to take that thing out because it's more dangerous to leave it than to do the surgery. And she wouldn't, she wouldn't, she wouldn't, she waited till it was 6.3 centimeters to allow them to do the surgery. Um, she wouldn't, she wouldn't get any health stuff taken care of at all. There was one time where my mother had been calling her and calling her and couldn't get through. So she went over and Bobon was lying on her back in the living floor. She had all these like giant cathode ray tube TVs around. I don't know why, but and she'd been trying to move it, this 80-something-year-old woman with an abdominal aneurysm that had not yet been healed. And she, you know, she fell over lifting it. She threw her back out and she pitched a fit, not wanting to go to the emergency room. And I was just baffled by these, these sort of contradictions in her life. I mean, you're taking a huge risk by leaving that aneurysm in. Um, on, the other, on the other side, she took a, a huge, you know, really positive risk during the Second World War for something she really believed in. But then she also would put things away for a rainy day. Like when she when she died about 10 years ago, we found pounds and pounds of butter in the freezer, of you know sugar and aluminum foil in the closet. In fact, I'm just now finishing the last roll of tin foil, which we split among the family. And so I was like, how could she be so, so cautious about the future in some parts of her life and in other parts of her life, just, you know, not doing the right thing and, and creating big problems for my mom and for other people who had to kind of deal with the consequences of her not, you know, not dealing with, with the risk. And some of her not even just like risk, you know, the inevitability that she was going to die at some point and other people were going to have to clean up all these giant cathode ray tube televisions. And, and so she really got me thinking about how people deal with risk in completely different ways 
in completely different parts of their lives. And she was so opposite from my other grandparents who had everything. I mean, they had the menu for the funeral. Um, they had everything but the date inscribed on the gravestone. Everything was completely in order, finances and everything, but they were so organized. And so, you know, I grew up as the result of these two completely clashing cultures of risk-taking and preparation. And I guess that's how I got to be so obsessed with, uh, with risk and why some people deal with it and some people don't. And, and, and so what, what do you think has been, uh, through the work in, in your book, um, what has been some of the surprises related to risk and, and how do you think people uh, could think about risk in, in the context of a career, their jobs? What surprises was really how much risk actually defines us. And, and that's why I titled it what I did, You Are What You Risk. And it's why the, you know, the, the cover has a picture of a, a fingerprint in the shape of a maze. It's that it's just like a, a fingerprint on a wine glass at a crime scene identifies you uniquely to the rest of the world. Um, and the, you know, the things that created that imprint say everything about who you are, whether or not you're committing a crime. Um, but, but so all the, all the choices that we make, we make actually about 35,000 choices every single day, which is kind of mind blowing. And every single one of those choices is a risk and every single risk is a choice. And some of them we make consciously and some of them we don't. And those choices define the future path. They tell the rest of the world who we are, but we don't really think about the world through a risk lens. And as I delve deeper into the questions of, of why each one of us makes the risk decisions that we do, I realized how much it tells us about what we care about, what we don't care about, uh, what our purpose is, what our dreams are, our, our biggest fears uh, about the people around us and how we relate to, to them, about the experiences we've had in our lives and how that relates to our innate personality. It's very interesting to see that some people have a big shock happen. I mean, like a, a refugee who has to leave a war-torn country uh, and they go and they take something that other people see as a big risk, you know, getting in a, in a raft and in shark infested waters. But for them, that's actually the least risky of the options. And they go to a new country and, and some of them thrive and become entrepreneurs and others become very, very cautious and conservative. Uh, and they, they both got, gone through the same experience. Like what makes that difference? And so the intersection of your innate personality with the experiences that you've had helps to determine the path forward. And I get asked a lot, uh, you know, are, are, is, is your risk fingerprint changeable? And there are certain things you can't change, like your, your innate personality, but your habits, your awareness of risk, of the reasons why you make the decisions that you do. And above all, your awareness of what's really, really important to you and what's not. Like the, the things that you're willing to risk really say to the world who, who you are. And, and so it was both this realization of how important risk is to who each one of us is, and at the same time, how little we think about the thing that is so crucial to really the heart of our identities. And so, and, and so how does how do you see this related to 
um, Great Rhino and and your your previous book in the sense of because what I'm hearing is like we don't see what other people could see as risks and we don't uh, take action on them. Um, yeah, just be kind of curious as to how you think you know, kind of our jobs and our careers are connected to risk and to gray rhinos? Absolutely. This is a great question. Um, so of course, You Are What You Risk came out of The Gray Rhino, which was my third book. And The Gray Rhino is a metaphor for the big scary thing that's coming at you. You, you think of the two tons with the horn pointed at you. Um, and it's gray because uh, when you go to the zoo, when you're six years old, you find out that there's a species called a black rhino and there's a species called a white rhino. And neither one of them is actually that color. They're gray, which should be kind of obvious, but you know we, we miss it. And so my point is that you're more likely than you think to miss the big, obvious, scary thing coming at you. But some people get it. You know, Some people get out of the way. Some people recognize the crisis and, and use the force of it to make something better. And only some people get trampled. And, and that's really the question I was trying to get at with the gray rhino. And I asked really, you know, people said, why don't people respond to things? And I thought about it at that time in terms of where the crisis is, the sort of five stages, you know, loosely inspired by the five stages of, of grief. And uh, the first, the, you know, the Great Rhino itself was really about, you know, business and finance and policy, which is a world I came from. But I went around the world and so many people came up to me and said, how do I apply this to my personal life? And some people just said, this is how I applied it to my personal life which often involve careers. Um, you know, my best friend had been working for, um, for a, a, a publicly funded college in Wisconsin, uh, working with displaced homemakers and, and their entire budget depended on state, um, you know, state funding. And uh, you know, the governor came in and the writing was on the wall that this funding was not gonna be there infinitely. So she went back to school. Uh, she got a master's degree in, uh, in library science and uh, she's now the happiest librarian in the world. Um, but as she was going through that, she says, this is my gray rhino. It's the, you know, the losing the funding for my job. And then she later used the same, the same principles for, for dealing with her mother when she was diagnosed with, with Parkinson's disease. And so many other people talked to me about career gray rhinos. Um, this, I did a workshop in Chicago and a young man was talking about, he thought his gray rhino was that he was terrible at time management because when he was at work, he would just kind of, you know, thither and, you know, not, not get things done. Um, but then he said, you know, so I decided to start making an app to, to help me with this because none of the apps out there work. And he's like, when I'm working on the app, I just get really excited and I move forward. And so I said, well, you know, your gray rhino is not actually time management. It's that your job is boring. If I, I don't remember what the job is. It was that boring. Um, and so, you know, in careers, people, you know, I thought of it as defining what the career gray rhino is coming at you. Um, early on in my career, I had, I had, um, had finished graduate school and, uh, you know, it was crazy. I did graduate school while working 35 hours a week for a newspaper. Um, on my midterm breaks, I covered a coup in Haiti and the end of the war in El Salvador and, you know, was, was you know, budgeted, you know, less than six hours of night asleep, asleep a night and just was, you know, pushing too hard. And so then went on to this, this job writing about uh, third world debt restructuring and, and working on my first book over the weekends. Um, and it was just, it was really intense. And there was one day where I just, I started crying and I'm, I'm mm. really not a crier. Like I cried about a week after my best friend was, was murdered under mysterious circumstances. Uh, it was like delayed. And so I'd like, I had no idea why I was crying. 
And of course, it's obvious when I tell the story that <laughs> it's just, you're really pushing myself way too hard. And, um, you know, all my friends were saying, you know, more being, less doing, more being, less doing. And, you know, like I got it intellectually, but, but not emotionally, not in my heart, not in my gut. And so I ended up getting very sick uh, because I was overworking myself and I had to make some serious choices, you know, between sort of, you know, traditional career path, meeting everybody else's expectations. And, and I finally realized that, that until I found what I was really supposed to be doing with my talents, I was just going to get sick again. So it didn't matter if I went and tried to achieve all these other things and I was just going to lose it all. And, and that was a real, uh, real wake up moment for me. And it, you know, it's funny. I, uh, I often ask people in, in workshops and book events, I said, well, you know, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? And in fact, I asked a lot of people that while I was writing, you are what you risk. And so a couple of uh, smart aleck reporters uh, asked me about the book. I said, okay, well, Michelle, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? And so I, you know, I talked about that, you know, career versus health decision. And as I explained it to them, I got to the end and I realized, wait a minute, that was actually not the biggest risk, the decision I took. It was the second biggest risk. You know, the, the, the bigger risk was the quote unquote safe path. And so now I ask people first, ask, okay, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? And then I ask them, all right, what's the biggest risk you've decided not to take? Because that's really, it's really key in thinking about risk. It's like riskier than what? It's, it's a choice among different options. You know, it's not just, am I gonna do this or not? It's the opportunity cost. It's, it's what am I gonna do instead? You know, am I gonna stay in a job with a boss who's a control freak who can't make up their mind? Or am I going to find something that really fits what I want and, and my purpose? And I was so impressed researching the book talking to, to younger people, uh, you know, a, a young woman who has uh, just graduated college, but she was still in college when I interviewed her. And she talked, she was very aware of the risks of burnout. And she was very aware of the risks of, uh, of going to someplace that didn't fit her ideal working condition. She was very, very much about teamwork as a way to reduce risk and uh, opportunity costs and all these things that I wish I had known to think about when I was that age. So, so, you know, risk, you know, thinking about your risk fingerprint as you think about your career choices is absolutely, absolutely essential. And it's, it sounds like you're saying is like the nine to five thing is very risky, especially compared to kind of what it used to be uh, or used to be considered. And so if we don't recognize where things have moved or shifted and or the opportunities and access that the internet and our current culture has enabled for us. Yeah, can you speak to it? Because in the book, you also, you had a chapter on the future of work. So kind of curious has, how you think about this, this idea of like nine to fives being risky or not. And, you know, where, where we're kind of going with uh, the future of work. The question of whether a particular job is more or less risky, I think also depends on, on the person. You know, I get asked a lot, is there an ideal risk personality type? And I always say no, um, but there is an ideal combination, which, you know, which is a group of different attitudes if you're making decisions uh, either for yourself or for a company and there's an ideal fit or not. And that really comes from awareness. I mean, there are some people who are much more comfortable in the traditional 
job uh, you know, format. They get the nine to five, the working for the man, you've got your, your 401k and your health insurance and your life insurance and, and all of this stuff set up for you. And if that, of course, has become much riskier than it used to be because it's a much smaller uh, set of, of jobs and you know, employers are looking to, uh, to cut costs by going to, to contractors and, and freelancers. And, um, but, but there are some people who are more comfortable with something that's more traditional. And there are some people who are totally happy going to a startup or being a solopreneur or whatever. And so the question is, um, I mean, yes, which one of those fits you, but what are the kind of things that you can do to optimize your situation? So like, for example, if you, if you want to go be an entrepreneur yourself, uh, do you have a strong network of, you know, friends and family and supporters? Um, do you have a relationship, you know, with someone who's going to support you or someone who's going to kick you out if you don't make enough time for them because of your, your startup? Um, you know, do you have the sort of, you know, you know, financial backing? Do you have the skills, the education that you need? Do you have the network that you need? Uh, I can't stress enough how having the right network is a really great risk management strategy for your career. Um, because they're, they're there to help you get the information that you need um, about, you know, what skills to build, help you to build the skills. Uh, what's this company like? What's that company like? What should I be thinking of? And, you know, the more knowledge you have about a situation, the more control you have and that you feel you have. Um, so the question about you know, when you're looking for jobs is really what's the right fit for you and what are the things that you can do to, to optimize a particular situation. There's a very interesting study that I quoted in the book, uh, which is, uh, you know, they talked to a lot of freelancers about what they perceived as riskier, with, you know, staying in the job or having a bunch of different sources of income that they controlled. And a lot of them really felt that the diversified sense, uh, sets of, of income were less risky. And many of them were, were willing to take uh, you know, less pay to take, you know, you know, greater pay volatility uh, in order to, to have that. Um, so it's, it's a very, very interesting set of questions because on the other hand, it, you know, entrepreneurs and, and freelancers don't have the kind of risk umbrella that companies create for employees. And I think that raises a whole set of questions about how we provide risk umbrellas for, for workers. And, you know, this, this gap actually makes it riskier for people working at companies uh, because, you know, when there's somebody else who companies can pay less, you know, and not give them those risk protections, you know, your job, your supposedly less risky job uh, becomes uh, riskier because it's less attractive to an employer in some ways. And I, and I don't think that all employers recognize enough the benefits of everybody having a risk umbrella, everybody being more, more productive, whether it's a contractor or an, a traditional employee. And I don't think policymakers have clued into that easier. So I think we completely need to rethink how we provide protections for workers of all kinds, you know, health insurance, life insurance, you know, whatever. And uh, I, I think if we thought about it more broadly, we'd actually create a situation that was, that was better off for companies as well, there's, there's more efficient. So it's, it's like a whole big Pandora's box of questions. <laughs> 
for episode round two uh, <laughs> on the policy and, and uh, more macro, in the macro side of things. Um, and so you mentioned having a network is a really great mis- risk mitigation tool for people's careers. Also in the book, you talked a lot about, not a lot, but this idea around creating your own luck. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that and how that, uh, like what, pe- what people could do if they said, I want to create my own luck, like, you know, what, is there an exercise or is there something that they could do today, this weekend, et cetera? It's a very, very simple question, which is, you know, what do I need to accomplish this and who can help me get that? Um, I was fascinated. I, I interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs for the book all sorts of different uh, fields from, you know, a, a designer, um, a, a sort of uh, clean energy person, um, a couple who owns a, uh, a waffle truck, waffles and dingus, and all of these, these different kinds of entrepreneurs. And what was interesting to me is, is partly there's some research that talks about social entrepreneurs generally being sort of, you know, upper middle class um, white kids who have a social safety net to rely on. They probably got some, you know, friends and family financing they can use to get their, their social enterprise started. Um, but, you know, what if those resources were available to people in neighborhoods that really, really need these social enterprises? And I also found that among the entrepreneurs I spoke with, they had a completely different set of backgrounds. And the most fascinating story to me was uh, Jermiko. She's a Chicago-based designer. Um, if you've seen the video for uh, for Lemonade, uh, Beyonce's video, if you're wearing that awesome hoodie with the zipper, that's um, the swap out hoodie is, is uh, Jermiko's uh, design and invention. And um, it's, it's pretty amazing. And she's, she's an amazing person, a great storyteller too. But, you know, she, she grew up um, poor, you know, staying with her grandmother. Her, her mother came up to... Uh, to Chicago to work. And, you know, she was staying in the South until she, she kind of, you know, opened her mouth when she shouldn't have. And uh, you know, they said it would be better for you as a small black girl, not to be in the South anymore. Um, and so, you know, she grew up with, with a, you know, struggling mother and um, she was a you know, very plucky kid. I mean, so she had that innate personality that helped to get her where she needed to go. Um, but a lot of her successes involved her, going and and talking to someone and finding out what she needed. There were there were a couple of people who sort of self-appointed themselves as, as mentors, like her boss in her uh, in one of her early jobs. Um, but that's basically how she got to be so successful. She didn't she didn't have these sort of you know networks and privileges just handed to her on a on a silver platter. She went and did it and she asked herself that very question, what do I need and who's going to help me to get it? And another one of the entrepreneurs, um, you know, who, who was in, in clean energy, uh, he's very, he has a, a, a white Texan for a family, been in Texas for generations. And he's very open about the fact that he couldn't do what he's doing right now if it weren't for this strong family network in the sense that, you know, there would be some financial fallback if he, if he fails. And, and so that, that really speaks to me about the nature of risk being very, very wobbly, kind of like a room full of funhouse mirrors, that uh, that all the circumstances around the risk change how risky it is. And, you know, maybe not, uh, in, in some cases, maybe not 
you know, whether the risk is a good one or not one, but whether you have a safety net, whether you have something to fall back on. And that's hugely important. So the, you know, it's, it's a matter of asking yourself the questions that you need, uh, you know, how am I get what I need and ask yourself, okay, what if, what if I fail? What's the worst that could happen? And if I fail, do I have enough of a plan B? Um, you know, you don't want to focus on plan B from the beginning because that takes your focus off of the plan A. Um, but, but knowledge, uh, planning, networks, all of those are things that you need to take good risks, whether it's, you know, in, in a job, in a regular, you know, old fashioned job or, you know, with a, a bunch of gigs or, you know, doing a startup, any sort of configuration, those skills and questions are going to help you take the best risks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, earlier you mentioned, you know, this idea around the risk umbrella, and often what I've seen from people that have, you know, their portfolio careers, it's like, usually they have like an umbrella, uh, of which that they, you know, for you, it's a little bit like you're focusing on the topic of risk, right? And there's a lot of different ways to communicate the topic to, you know, develop work, to work on different things. Uh, so it's just really interesting to think about the risk umbrella, but also like the work umbrella is like a little bit of the inverse, right? What's the umbrella of projects, skills, relationships, networks, et cetera, that you can, you know, kind of create and weave together? The concept that's really important is it's, is that of a risk portfolio. And that's that you've got different risks in different parts of your life. I hear people say, oh, I'm risk averse. And first of all, I hate that term. Don't, don't even get me started. You don't want to hear my soapbox about it. But, um, but it's also that, that, you know, you don't have the same relationship with risk in different parts of your life. I mean, you know, financial risk, relationship risk, uh, career risk, you know, ethical risk, you know, health and safety risks, and, you know, social risks, whether you're willing to say the thing that nobody else wants you to say. And people usually are on very different registers in, in those different parts of, of risk. And so when you're deciding what kinds of risks to take in one area, it's good to look back and think about where the dial is. You know, it's as I was saying before, you know, if you can do a startup, you know, where's the, the risk level in your relationship? Um, you know, maybe you want to dial it down on the ethical side because you know we've seen with a number of startups that have kind of blown up how if, if you don't get that right it's it's a big problem you know health and safety you want to be super conservative about that there were a, a couple of a, a team of business owners i talked to um and uh, one of them had two heart attacks and uh, you know she and she interestingly was the the more risk comfortable risk seeking of of the two um so what you want to do is if you're thinking about hey i'm going to make a big financial bet uh, obviously, you want to think about your financial portfolio the way they normally tell you to, you know, diversify, you know, have your some of your stuff in, in bonds and some of it in stocks, some of it in your startup, whatever. Um, but look at that portfolio more broadly is all the other parts of your life uh, so that if there's something where you just absolutely are going to pursue that risk, um, think about the rest. I, you know, I was on a, on a webinar a couple of weeks ago on a panel. And uh, the, the moderator asked all of us that, that question about, you know, what's the biggest risk that you've ever taken or not taken? And uh, one of the panelists, very, very successful female executive said, I did not take the risk to get married. I'm not going to do it. Uh-uh. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's true. It's, you know, you know, relationships also are a big risk. And, you know, some people are more comfortable with a network of great friends and some people really want to be in that rock solid relationship. And, and I've got friends in both camps, some of whom I, I look at and I just, 
I admire the way that they work together and they've got that, that really great support network for each other. And, uh, but there are other people who I see and they're in a bad marriage and I'm like, that's, that's sucking the air out of all of the other choices that they're, that they're going to make. So the risk in all of your parts of life has to work together, just like a, a financial portfolio would. Some parts, you know, more, more safety, other parts, more risk. And so when you're asking yourself what you need, you should ask, where do I need more safety? And where can I get a little wild? Because mm. we usually don't often think about where do I need more safety, right? We normally think about, you know, how could I make more money? How could this be more enjoyable? How could this be, you know, how can I do this in less time? But we normally don't think about as much of how do I de-risk the thing that I'm currently working on or thinking about or the problem or the decision that I'm about to make. So that's a really interesting uh, framework just to think about just on a, more, on a more regular basis. And I learned a lot from some of the adventurers and, you know, extreme athletes who I talked to for the book and, you know, our stereotype is, oh, these are daredevils. They just, you know, love that. And of course, there's a certain amount of the risk, the challenge that, that definitely excites them. Um, but the way that they make those possible is that they really study things. You know, they study the, 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 the route of the, the race that they're going to take. They study the conditions. They st study the weather. They practice. You know, they get their muscles into shape. You know, risk-taking is, is another kind of muscle we don't think about. And, you know, some people who are used to making, uh, making big choices, you know, taking risks, you know, you get better at it the more, the more you do. But, but I found that these, these people who are so-called daredevils are actually extremely methodical and conservative about the risks that they're going to take. So they, they minimize all the risks that are possible in a scenario so that they can do the thing that actually makes them, them shine. Yeah, love that, cool. Anything else that you think that we missed, Michelle? Is there something, uh, a micro action or something that you think people should definitely do or don't do given what you know about risk in, in, in the context of our jobs and careers? Sure. Well, I think the first, the first thing is to be aware of your own risk fingerprint, to understand why you're making the risk decisions that you are uh, and what you can do to optimize that, to build on your strengths and to, to offset your weaknesses. You know, if you, if you always leap before you look, you know, do you have a colleague, a mentor, a friend, a family member who can come and say, Hey, you know, let's just, let's take a breath before we, we do that. Um, and, you know, and if you are a, a shrinking violet, you know, who can help you feel more confident? And once you understand your own risk fingerprint, you know, why you're doing what you're doing, what are the habits and processes uh, and peers you can assemble to help you to make better risk decisions, then apply that to the people around you. A risk empathy is another hugely important concept. And I think in the workplace, it's, it's essential. For, for team building, for, for people working together. Uh, you know, I've talked to people about conversations, tough conversations they've had in the office about whether people are comfortable returning to the office or, or not. And it's, you know, are you comfortable taking public transportation? I mean, some people drive in, some people have to take the train and that's a very different set of, of risks. You know, here in Chicago, I've, I've learned that the bus and the L, the, the, the sort of subway train are very different risk propositions. Um, although the other day that, you know, the, the bus used to be safer, although there's a the bus drama the other day with, with masks. So now I don't even know 
Um, but, you know, think about what's going to make your colleagues feel safer or pull them back from the ledge if they're doing something that endangers them, the company, and you. And so the risk empathy is really an extension of this risk fingerprint concept. And it all starts with understanding and awareness and a sort of internal temperature check on, on where you're coming from and what you are doing to, you know, to make your decisions better or worse. And once you apply that, things open up in, in ways you would not have imagined before. Love that. Amazing. Risk empathy. Hmm. So, all right. I think that's a wonderful way to wrap up here. This was an incredible conversation, Michelle. Please let listeners know where they can learn more about your work, your book, et cetera. Yeah. Just thank you so much, Michelle. Oh, thank you. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Wooker, W-U-C-K-E-R. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and you can visit my website, thegrayrhino.com, G-R-A-Y, rhino.com. With an E, we'll get you there too, but <laughs> A is, is faster. Um, and, you know, always love getting getting comments on on Twitter and LinkedIn and, and being in touch with people. So so don't be shy about reaching out. And, and frankly, with questions, you know, the questions I got from readers around the world are are why I wrote this new book. So it's it's really wonderful for me to get the kind of questions and comments and feedback. I love that. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you, David. Hey friend, thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Portfolio Career Podcast. Would love to hear what you learned and what you enjoyed. Um, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever is best for you. And as a reminder, I'm just one email away as well. This episode with timestamp notes is available on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There you can subscribe to my newsletter called One Email Away, which includes the best insights from the podcast and friend-sourced opportunities. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Thank you so much.